Good morning. morning. Thank you. My name is Derek. If I haven't met you, uh, I hope I do soon. We are uh, here on this Easter morning finishing, actually, a sermon series that we've been in where we've been focusing in on chapter 8 of the book of Romans. And if you've been here, you've probably heard me say this many times, is that Romans chapter 8 may be the pinnacle of the entire Bible. Some of the the best news in the entire Bible is found packed into that chapter. And, And here at the pinnacle, we've actually reached what may be the pinnacle of the chapter. This very end part, right here on the pinnacle of the Christian year where we get to celebrate the resurrection. So I hope that you will uh, sit and dig in with me to God's word and see the amazing love that he has for us in Christ. So with that in mind, open your Bibles if you've got them to Romans chapter 8. We will be reading uh, verses 31 through the end of the passage, 39. Uh, It's also on the screen above. You can follow along if you don't have a Bible. Here's what God's word says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word the incredible proclamation of your love toward us. Lord, we're hard-headed people, and so we oftentimes don't get it. So we just ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, would open your word to us today, that we might see you more clearly, and in seeing you, might love you and might follow you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, One of my, uh, I'm kind of a fan of commercials. Um, I know. We can talk about that later. Uh, but one of my, my favorite older commercials is a commercial for Mercedes-Benz, and it's, it's advertising their, their SUV, the, the G-Series, which if you know what that is, if you've seen it, it looks kind of like a cross between a Jeep and a tank and a Mercedes. Um, it's pretty awesome. And uh, in this commercial, it's really short. It's showing you know kind of the normal uh, crash test area, and you've got the two crash test dummies that are driving the car, and they're just going to ram this thing into the wall and see how it holds up and see how the dummies do so they can make sure it's safe, right? So they set them off, pedal to the metal, this thing is cruising, it is coming up and it is about to smash into the wall, and what it does is it actually smashes through the wall and then through the office next door and then out the whole place and it drives off kind of, you know, into Neverland. It's pretty funny. And, you know, the point, of course, is this thing is unbeatable. It's unstoppable. It's unbreakable. That's really Paul's point here in this passage, too. 
is that God's love for us, shown in Christ, is unbreakable. And we're going to look actually at five facets of that unbreakable love this morning. This, these few verses are just packed with incredible truth. Five facets of God's unbreakable love for us. Here's the first one. The first thing is that no one can defeat God's love. Listen again to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now listen, if, if he had just started in the second half of that sentence, we would have a different implied answer, wouldn't we? If he had started and said, who could be against us? Well, we can make a pretty long list. The church for centuries has kind of had three major categories, the world, the flesh, the devil, all things that keep us actually from the Lord. There's the culture against the Lord. There's the devil who is our accuser and God's enemy. And there is our own flesh and our sinful tendencies. All things that we might think could stand up to God keeping us from him. But he doesn't start there, does he? He starts with, if God is for us, then who could be against us? And that if in Greek, by the way, is, is not about uncertainty. It's about certainty. It's probably better translated since. Since God is for us, who could be against us? Paul's argument is, yeah, there's a long list of things and people and, and, and ideas and powers that are against you, but when you compare them to the God who is for you, they don't stand a chance. I, I don't know if there are golfers out here. I'm not really a golfer, but, um, but in golf there is, uh, there's, there's a kind of tournament, a way that you play a tournament called a scramble. Some of you have probably played in a scramble before. If you haven't, here's, here's kind of how a scramble works is that you have teams, usually about four players on the team, and everybody starts at the tee box, and they all take their tee shot, and then you take the ball that's in the best position and move everybody's ball up to that position, and then you go for the second stroke, and so on and so on. After the second stroke, whoever has the best ball there, the best position, everybody takes their third stroke from that place, and so on, until finally somebody sinks a putt. So if you are playing in a scramble, let's say it's for the next fundraiser you're in, it's really nice to have a ringer on your team. <laughs> Somebody who you're pretty sure is always going to hit it pretty well. I was talking to Larry Shudak the other day who told me the story of the weekend of his daughter's wedding. And the father of the groom had organized a golf outing for the men on the Friday of that weekend. And he said, you know, we'll go play golf, but let's spice it up a little bit and let's have some competition. So let's play a scramble. So that's what they did. They all got together. They had this scramble, and he had divided everybody up into teams. And he said to Larry, Larry, you're going to be on a team with your sons, and then I've also put my old college roommate on your team. I've kind of organized things. And Larry said, okay, great, you know, you're, you're organizing it. You're the boss, but um, is he any good? And he said, well, he's Okay. His name is Ben Crenshaw. <laughs> if you don't know golf, Ben Crenshaw is a former PGA Tour player who won 19 PGA Tour events, who has won the Masters not once, but twice, who's in the World Golf Hall of Fame. So yeah, he was pretty good. Needless to say, Larry's team did all right. They might even walk out on the course and say, if Ben is for us, who could be against us? That's the feeling that Paul leads with here, is that God is for us, and so no one can be against us. No one can defeat God's love. 
Here's the second thing. Nothing can change God's love for us. Look at verse 32 again. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's logic is so wonderful. I love his argument here. He's saying, okay, maybe you're thinking, great, God has saved me, but I'm in a lot of trouble right now, so I'm not really sure if God is going to come through in the end. Or maybe his love will kind of wane. Maybe his love will fade. Maybe he's not really going to be as faithful as I think he is. And Paul's argument is this. Well, okay, let's look at his past behavior. What has he done for you lately? Well, he did actually give his one and only son for your life. So maybe when you start to get nervous about who God is and what his character is, we can actually look back at what he's done. I mean, this is true, right? Is that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. That's why you make a resume when you're looking for a job. You want to tell your new employer, look at all the great things that I've done, so probably I'm going to do some great things in the future. It's why you call references when somebody is going to do some work on your home. It's why when your daughter calls and says, Daddy, I've met somebody and I love him and he's only been married five times, you get a little nervous. It's because past behavior is usually a pretty good indicator of future behavior. So let's just think through what God's past behavior is. God created all things out of nothing. He created mankind and he gave him a good place to live and a good job and a family. And then mankind rebelled against God, brought all of the world even to a state of brokenness and sin, but God didn't give up. God actually set out on a plan to redeem and renew all things. He chose Abraham and his family to be the vehicle of that redemptive plan. And you know what? Abraham, when it really came down to it, wasn't really all that trustworthy. But God didn't give up. In fact, Abraham had sons and grandsons, and the sons and grandsons weren't all that trustworthy. One of them's name literally meant deceiver, but God didn't give up. And when his people found themselves in slavery in Egypt, in Egypt, God rescued them with a mighty hand. He brought them out of the most powerful nation in the world. He delivered them through the Red Sea. He fed them when they were hungry. He gave them water when they were thirsty. He conquered all of their enemies and he brought them into a new land and conquered those enemies too. And then when those people weren't all that trustworthy, God didn't give up. And they had a bunch of kings who, by, by and large, weren't very good kings. And God didn't give up on them. And in fact, all those bad kings ended up landing God's people in exile. But God rescued them again and brought them back. And you would think at this point, surely, surely God is going to give up on these people. But no. What does he do? He sends his one and only son to take on flesh, to become one of us, to take up even our sin. And he taught and he preached and people hated him. And he healed people and cured them of their diseases and people still hated them. And he told people of God's love and they still hated him and they killed him. And that is what God has done for us, is he has given us his one and only son. He has given us his one and only son to pay the price, the penalty for our unfaithfulness. And so do you think maybe we can trust him? Do you think maybe that that record of past behavior would indicate a good outlook for future behavior? If God did not spare his own son, then he's not going to stop loving us either. 
All right, let's keep going. Three, not only can God's love never change, God's love never stops. Look at verse 34 again. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, and listen to this, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, what does that mean, that Jesus is interceding for us? Well, what it means is that when Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin, he actually wasn't finished because he was raised to new life to conquer sin and to give us life. But, you know, even after he was raised, he still wasn't finished because he ascended to his throne, is sitting at the Father's side and is ruling and reigning over all creation. But we hear here in Romans 8 that even in his reign and his rule, he's still not finished because he is continually at work. And what is he doing? Part of his reign and rule as our king is interceding for us. He is praying for us. That is what Jesus is doing continually. I have a friend who tells a story of, um, of a life-changing moment she had one morning and the time that she really understood her father's love for her. For her. She got up kind of early in the morning to get a drink of water, and as she was kind of wandering, bleary-eyed back to her bedroom, she caught in the corner of her eye the living room and saw her dad early in the morning on his knees in prayer. And later that day, she said, Dad, what were you up so early praying about? And he said, well, sweetie, I was praying for you. You know, if we, if we caught a glimpse into the throne room of the king, what we would find is our king on his knees praying for us, continually interceding for us. His love never ends. It never stops. He keeps loving us. He keeps praying for us. He keeps interceding for us. Fourth thing, fourth facet of God's unbreakable love is that no one can condemn those who God loves. Look at verse 33 again. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Paul is using courtroom language here. Are you familiar with, the, uh, with, with double jeopardy? It, it's not the second round of jeopardy, no. Double jeopardy is a legal term. It means that you can't be tried for the same crime more than once. Once you have been tried and acquitted for that crime, you can't be tried again. So nobody can bring a charge against you. Nobody can even bring, come, bring into the, to the, uh, to the courtroom. You can find no standing before the judge if the trial has already happened and has been finished. Well, friends, if you are a Christian, your trial happened 2,000 years ago on Good Friday when God, the judge, should have rightfully proclaimed you and I to be guilty, guilty of sin, truly, but where Jesus came and stood in our stead. And he took the punishment for our guilt. And he gave us his righteousness, his perfect righteous record. And so the judge actually declared you and I in this incredible statement to be righteous. You and I, who rightfully should wake up every morning and confess our unrighteousness, God has said you are perfect because of Jesus' righteousness. And what that means is that that trial can't happen again. It's finished there is no one who can condemn you. Now, there are a lot who will try. We've already listed the big three, right? The world. There probably are people who would like to accuse you. There certainly is the devil who the Bible calls the accuser. But 
I mean, probably the one that we hear the most is our own accusations, the voices in our head, the one that says, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's good for most people, but for you, remember that thing you did last night, 30 years ago? I'm not sure there's really no condemnation for you. Or we kind of start to do the, you know, the, the, the register, the, the, the legal register, right, where, where we're kind of checking the books to see, like, okay, how much red is here and how much black is here, and we're starting to kind of see if we can maybe balance it a little bit. And we maybe even play kind of both sides on our head and where we think, um, you know, you did help unload the dishwasher the other day. You should get some points for that, right? And then the other voice that says, yeah, but remember that off-color joke you also told the same day? And then we start digging even deeper, and we find our, our motivations and our hard desires. And most of us, if we're honest, get to the point where we know there is way more red in the ledger. We try to accuse ourselves, but actually what God says here is that that trial has already happened. There is no standing for those who would accuse God's people. There is no standing because Jesus has already made it so. Jesus has already declared us righteous. Friends, God's love is so great, so unbreakable, so powerful, so unending that no one can condemn us. Let's finish with this one. Number five, not only can no one defeat God's love, nothing can change God's love, nothing, you know, God's love never stops, no one can condemn us, but this one, no situation is too much for God's love. Let me read 38 and 39 one more time. For I am sure, or maybe your Bible says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Really? Yeah, but what about all of these things, right? What about the troubles I'm experiencing? What about the sickness that I have? Maybe that can separate me. What about the fact that my, my father was just diagnosed with cancer or my child was just diagnosed with, with the disease he's going to have to live with for the rest of his life? Or what about the fact that um, I'm not even sure I can pay my bills, much less send my kids to college? Or what about the fact that um, I just lost my job? Or I'm not sure where I'm going to live next week? What about all of those situations that seem like they're pretty big and they would probably stand in the way of God's love and care for me? What about those things that it just doesn't ever feel like there's good happening? Or what about the rejection that I'm feeling from the people around me? The loneliness I feel because my friends have left me or they've said something that's wounded me, or, or my spouse has done something harmful to me, and it's actually the same thing that my spouse has been do it, saying and doing for years and years and years. And so I feel deeply wounded and lonely and rejected. What about that? Will that separate me from God's love? Or what about my physical provisions? What if I'm a Christian in the Ukraine right now, and my house was just bombed, and, and my young son was killed? How about that? Can that separate us from God's love? Well, of course, it's helpful, I think, to first say what we know to be true, which is Christians will experience difficult times. 
Christians will suffer. Christians will suffer because the world is broken and because we will experience everything that everyone else experiences, natural disasters, sickness, and hardship, and pain. And Jesus tells his disciples that Christians will also experience suffering because of persecution, that those who don't like Jesus will actually not like those who follow Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul, it's interestingly enough, has experienced himself, the guy who wrote this letter, almost all of the things that he lists here. I want you to just hear what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is Paul talking about his own life experience. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from those things, there's even the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. The Apostle Paul went through a lot, and he's the guy that can still say that there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. Of course, these things do tend to have a way of prying apart our grip on the Lord, don't they? I mean, the last couple of years, let's be honest, haven't been good to the church. Uh, after the pandemic, uh, church attendance across the board everywhere in the world is down. And a lot of what that's done is actually kind of pried apart people's grip on what they said they believed and who they said they worshipped and proclaimed. And what it's done is it's just kind of given people and sometimes, you know, excuse to do what they really didn't want to do in the first place, which was go to church. And now that the cultural pressure is off and now that you've kind of given me excuse to either stay home in my pajamas or not come at all, well, you know, now the pressure's off and I don't have to do it. So here's what's true is that all of those things, all of those physical and temporal things, all of those spiritual attacks, they actually can pry away our grip on the Lord. And in fact, they do so often. But here's the issue. And here's the point Paul makes. And here's the one thing. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. None of those things will pry away his grip on us. See, we oftentimes think about our relationship to the Lord's salvation kind of like this. right? Here's the bond, and we're holding on to each other. But if this is actually the illustration, then what happens if I let go? Well, the bond is broken, isn't it? But really, the picture that the Bible paints is more like this, where when the trouble comes and my grip is pried away, God has still got his hold upon me. Amen. Amen, indeed. God's love never changes. His grip can never be moved. It is firm and unstoppable and unshakable and unbreakable. It is forever. There is nothing that can change it. There's a story... Of, uh, of a church in, in Italy with a graveyard like a lot of old churches. And there's a grave there. It's pretty old, 100 years or so old. And there's a guy who's buried there. And he's buried there because, you know, everybody got buried in the churches those days in Italy. But he definitely did not believe. In fact, he wanted to make it clear to everyone that he didn't believe in the resurrection. So what he did was he had a big stone tablet, big stone piece put over his grave. And then he had inscribed in that big stone tablet, that, that, that slab, that's something like that said, I don't want to be resurrected. I don't believe it. 
Now, there's a little bit of irony, right? If you don't believe it, why'd you go to all the expense of writing it in the stone tab, you know, slab? But here's what's pretty amazing is that when they buried the guy, evidently, uh, an acorn must have fallen into his grave. Because what happened is that that acorn started to sprout and an oak tree started to grow up and broke apart that stone slab. And so now, 100 years later, there is an enormous oak tree and there is a broken stone slab right there at that guy's grave. Nothing can stop the power of an oak tree when it wants to grow, not even a big piece of stone. And friends, nothing can stop God's love for his people. Nothing can shake it. Nothing can break it. Nothing can move it. What we celebrate on Easter is the down payment of God's promise that one day all things will be new. That his unshakable, un, unfathomable, unbreakable love we will experience fully. If you've never heard that promise before, if you've never heard that proclamation, if you've never heard of a love like that, then, then I would invite you to dig into God's word, to investigate it further, to come talk to me. I'd love to sit down and talk with you. And friends, if you've been a Christian your whole life, let this be a joy, an encouragement, a challenge to you that God's love will never, ever fail. Let's pray. God, our Father, what, what wondrous love is this that you would give yourself for us? And what incredible love is this, Lord, that you would not stay in the grave, but you would rise so that you might defeat the power of death and sin for our, on our behalf. Lord, your love is unshakable. It is unstoppable. It is, it is unknowable to our tiny little minds. Thank you for revealing this great love to us in your word. We pray now, Lord, that we would be changed by it, that we would be those who desire to love you in return. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.